Okay, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday for us to gather in your name and open the scriptures together and pray with and for one another. And Lord, we also pray for the saints around the world who join with us and hear your words and are learning the scripture. Bless them and care for them and feed their hearts and souls and cause them to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. We pray for wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah. I was here. Let me just pause this here because it won't apply. Okay, now this morning we're on 2 Corinthians 3. And we are in verse 7. It says, if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even with more glory? Now, we introduced this verse last week. I I think I told you that the word glory is found ten times between verses 7 and 11. So, obviously, that's a theme, glory. And we have a a lesser to greater argument going on here that I think I outlined for you last week, that the lesser glory was the glory uh, that was seen under the Old Covenant, only in as much as it was still God's glory, and God's glory is never lesser than God's glory, it's always God's glory, but the covenant itself was less glorious for the simple reason that because of the hard-heartedness of those who heard the words of God and under the Old Covenant were, in, because of their hard-heartedness and their own sin, the words became a ministry of death because it made sin to be seen for what it is. Because sin, it says in Romans 5, the sin reigned from Adam to Moses, even in those who had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's sin. So sin was already in the human race before Moses. Amen. Okay? But when the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, delineating more specifically what is sin, then uh, the people's transgressions were all the more um, culpable. And so it's called a ministry of death. So the glory uh, was God's glory, but the ministry was less glorious. Okay, The ministry, was even though Moses shone... Uh, with the glory of God, and they had to put a veil over his face. The ministry wasn't as glorious as the new covenant, and that's the topic here, the new covenant ministry, verse 6. And this new covenant ministry is from the Spirit of God that actually writes God's law on hearts. Okay, so there's a an implied contrast between law written on stone and law written on hearts. And the law written on hearts is more glorious than the law written on stone. Now, there is a commentary here going on concerning Exodus 34, 29 to 35. So, Robert, if you could read that. That's Exodus 34, 29 to 35. And Paul sort of is doing a Jewish midrash. It's a sort of a moral and exemplary commentary based on a known incident in their own history. And he's taking that out and embellishing on it and explaining 
making a point from it. So Exodus 34, 29 to 35. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off, take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Okay, thank you, Robert. Now that's that's the incident. That's the incident in their history that's being commented upon and serves as a backdrop for verses seven through eleven. In fact, it goes even I think past there, if I remember right. Um, and yeah, it goes on actually all the way into chapter four. A commentary on that. Um, incident. It's an analogical commentary on the passage dealing with the concepts of the glory and the veil. Now, um, um, the fading here, the fading, I believe, is a, is a reference not to God's glory, because God's glory, in, because it's a, a, an aspect of His character and nature doesn't fade, but what was fading was the covenant that was going to be done away with. It's talked about in Hebrews. I think it points also to the passage in Matthew 17 that talks about glory on Jesus' face in the presence of Moses being greater. I'm going to read that. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as snow, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. So Jesus' face was shining in in the presence of Moses, who wasn't, so he was greater. Great point, absolutely. That's an astute reading. (laughs) That's an astute reading. That's absolutely true. And that's how the biblical writers make their point. Okay? You may not, if you read that incident on the Mount of Transfiguration, that was commentary on Jesus being the new and greater Moses. Okay? And Jesus being the true lawgiver. Now, on the pa- in the passage that Robert was reading, Moses went in and talked to God, and what he received from God was direct revelation from God for the people. Okay? So the, he, he received the, the very words of God, and so Moses was the lawgiver. He was the authoritative lawgiver under the Old Covenant. Jesus takes on that role in the New Covenant. And uh, when he gives his disciples the authority to bind and loose, I believe that he delegated to them the uh, authority to write the Scriptures, in my opinion. Uh, the, the inspired authors of the New Testament brought 
Jesus' words, his authoritative words, to the church. And those words of Jesus, not just the red letters, because the, uh, uh, the, the idea that the red letters are more significant than the black ones in the New Testament, um, based on the idea of red letter Bible with the words of Jesus, is an attack on, 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 the, on the canon. It's an attack on the con- concept that Paul himself met the resurrected Lord and received revelation that was binding for the church. And so we can't just say the red letters are authoritative and the black ones are not. Because that's, that's sort of like Marcion, uh, the heretic, who's going to cut up the Bible throughout parts of it. No, all of the New Testament are the words of Jesus because he authorized the apostles to bind and loose. Amen. All right? And when they went, in, for example, on Mars, no, not, I mean in uh, Acts 15, they bound and loose. And they loosed the Gentiles from having to keep the law of Moses. That was an authoritative loosing by the apostles. So, uh, good point, Keith, that the glory shown on, Mount, on the transfiguration so that the true glory belonged to the Son. Moses had reflected glory that came from God, but the Son shines himself with the very glory of God being one with God in essence. Amen. Now, um, let's look up some cross-references. Uh, Dick, do you want to look up um, Romans 7, 8 through 11? Joanne, Exodus 31, 18. Um, Daniel, Exodus 32, 15 and 16. Judith, Deuteronomy 4, 8. And Lois, Psalm 19, 7 and 8. Um, Artis, John 5, 39. Uh, how's your reading, Kathy? Pretty good. You think you can do it? Um, These are all longer readings, uh, and I know you struggle with it. I think I'll give it to Zeke. All I have is longer readings. Okay. Uh, Zeke, could you do uh, Luke 9, 29 to 31? Okay. And then I want to myself read Galatians 3, and we'll bring out some implications from Galatians. Okay, back to Romans 7, 8 through 11. 8 through 11, Okay. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, provided to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Okay. Interesting comment. Remember, we did that on the radio, Dick. We went through that section. Um, sin kill. It's, Paul's not saying he didn't have a sin nature because he just talked about that in Romans five. But if you look at Paul's history, you can read in Philippians three. He he said, according to the righteousness in the law, blameless. At least that's how he felt. That's how he felt as a Pharisee. He could stand up to any other Pharisee and say, "I'm a law keeper," but. <clears throat> Now, as a Christian, reflecting on the reality of the situation, when the Holy Spirit brought the law to bear on sinner Paul, Jesus confronting him in Acts 9, um, what you have is the realization that he was a sinner. Now, elsewhere in that chapter, he talks about the Tenth Commandment, about coveting. So the law convicts us. We've talked about that before. So I think that that teaching of Paul in Romans 7 should reflect, as we consider what he teaches here, 
in Second Corinthians 3. Now, Exodus 31, 18. When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Okay, so the, the tablets of stone were written by the finger of God. And um, these are called the ten words in Hebrew in the Old Testament. So God speaks words. God speaks authoritative words. God speaks words in a known human language, Hebrew. And those words were the tablet of the testimony or the covenant. So you have the uh, uh, authoritative verbal revelation. And those words were also propositional revelation. What's a proposition? What was that? Very good. Scott says something can be proven or disproven, or a statement that can be deemed true or false. And so the reason I'm using these terms, verbal, propositional, is that the postmodern theologians are attacking all of these ideas. And um, if you want to hear an interesting story about it, you could talk to Eric Dauma, who, um, when he was in seminary recently, he left that seminary because they've been so postmodern. His hermeneutic book was a book written in words claiming that words can't convey meaning. And it was based on this whole idea of deconstruction. So this, so they're teaching hermeneutics in seminary to suggest that you can't really know what the Bible means. And it's all culturally determined. So he read this whole book. And, and I, I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, I had to write a paper about the book. So he said, I wrote, I, I, I just used their own premises. He says, what this book means to me is that God has spoken in true words and we're bound, we're bound by those words. Amen. And the Bible means what it says. That's what his book means to me. <laughs> and being how everybody gets to find their own meaning, what, that's not what the book meant. But he just used the premises of the book and turned it in the paper and what does the professor say? say? If it, <laughs> yeah, it means to me we gotta believe what the Bible says. <laughs> okay, so. So now, did, did you read one, Daniel, yet? Um, go ahead and read yours, and, and then Keith has something. Exodus 32, 15, and 16. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were t- which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. The writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. I mentioned that in my debate with Doug Padgett. God writes words. Amen. Now, to deny that anybody can know what those words mean is an attack on the whole Christian faith. And it's an attack even on Judaism. Because Judaism and Christianity are based on the, on the same idea that God has spoken clearly and authoritatively. Yes. And I think that that same concept that the words mean something and we're to learn with our minds and educate our minds is consistent that God wrote in Hebrew. And if we can just allegorize or feel what these words mean, then there's no reason for us as English speakers to know what the Hebrew means. We could just look at the letters and see what the letters, like an ink blot, what, what that, that talks to us. I was with, uh, speaking with some people this week 
who felt that the Spirit told us what the words meant freestyle. And if that's true, why do we have to have an English Bible then? Because the Spirit can work with a Hebrew letters just as much. If it's to- Even if you don't understand yeah, if, if it's totally freestyle, why do we need to start with an English word to have a freestyle uh, spiritual interpretation? And the fact that we're meeting here in a place where there's a synagogue behind my back here, there's all kinds of Hebrew books and Hebrew courses so that they teach people Hebrew so they can understand the meanings of what God said in Hebrew is important to us. Absolutely. Because we rely on the education of people to tell us what God's words mean. Right. It's the duty of Christian leaders to give people the tools that they need so they can know what God's words say, they can interpret them accurately and apply them in their life. Any less, anything less than that by elders and pastors is a dereliction of duty. And to, and, and I will, I'll go even further. Those pastors who tell people that the Bible doesn't mean what it says and you can't understand it, are an attack against the gospel and they're attacking against the authority of God in the church. Amen. Amen. And uh, and I, I think I gave this illustration. I can't remember. I used it in a debate. I thought about it. I had many ideas about what to do in that debate. But I thought about this. What if somebody actually discovered the actual tablets of the Ten Commandments that were in the Ark of the Covenant? Let's say an archaeologist actually finds the real thing. And, and so um, you put them in a I know how people are. Let's say you put them in a museum and let people touch them. Would, would looking at them, touching them, sitting next to them, feeling them, do you any spiritual good? No, I wouldn't believe. Say yeah. man rose from the dead. He wouldn't believe Jesus. Exactly. The point is that artifacts and relics can't do you any good. And if, unless you know Hebrew and can read the words on those stones... They'll be worthless for your spiritual well-being, even if you had the real thing. Because what was significant were, the, <clears throat> were not just that the stones were artifacts, but that the words of God were written thereon. And those are authoritative, in there, infallible words that explain the law of God. Yes? So, the one thing that comes to my mind is that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And a lot of people don't see that. That's true. Okay, now you had over here Deuteronomy 4, verse 8. Oh, I love this passage. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? What nation has righteous statutes and judgment as this whole law? Moses and Deuteronomy, the, the, the people understood their sacred privilege. And then that's what's breaking my heart and is what's so tragic about what's going on in this postmodern thing. They knew that they were blessed beyond all peoples. There were no other peoples so blessed as Israel and under the Old Covenant that had these righteous laws and statutes. Amen. It was a privilege. Now, even though it was showing them their own sin, it was still a blessed privilege because in those words also contained the promise of salvation, that Messiah would be coming, right? And, and the words of, of Torah, uh, it, it promises that salvation is coming. Now, fast forward it today. Shouldn't we feel the same way? Amen. Shouldn't the church say, what peoples 
on all on the whole face of the earth is so blessed and privileged to have these words, to have these statutes, to have these teachings, to have this precious gospel, and wouldn't thereby it's an implication of that truth, uh, and this this is a valid way to interpret that passage, okay? Because we believe the new covenant is from God as much as the old was, and and so more this more glorious. They're both from God, but one is more glorious according to what we're studying here. Then wouldn't wouldn't it be the ultimate folly to disregard our precious heritage? Amen. To disregard the words of God as if they were uh, insignificant. Uh, it would be like inheriting the uh, the family fortune. Let's say you're the only uh, child and your family had been in some business for the last hundred years and accumulated a fortune and you're the only one left. And when you get the inheritance, you squander it all gambling and making bad investments and it's all gone. You would be considered, a, you'd be ridiculed. You'd be considered a fool and an idiot. Because you took a precious thing that took a hundred years for your family to build up and you, and you treat it as an unclean and worthless thing and you squandered it all. At the very least, you should have taken it and given it to charity. Amen. All right? Now, that would be wicked. I would say, how much more wicked is it to squander our biblical inheritance? Amen. By saying, it doesn't matter. We can't know what this means. It's too complicated and the words can't convey meaning and we don't believe in propositional truth. We don't believe. We've got to deconstruct everything. This is sad. And I heard a story, Diane Bukowski. Um, here, you can tell your story about Easter, what you heard. She was out of town and had to go to church somewhere else. What did you hear on Easter? And we don't believe in Easter. We believe in the resurrection, but we're stuck with a stupid word. <laughs> the pastor started the sermon by talking about um, the Mets and, and the Chicago Cubs. And um, the, how he spends his life following these two teams, and then he went into the movie made about them, and um, the the story is that the boy's father in the movie dies, and the father and ends up speaking to the son. They communicate through the radio that they listen to the games on. So he's speaking to his dead father. That's the sermon. That, that, was, that was what we heard on Easter. Well, Diane came here. Well, when I saw her this morning, she goes, Thank you, thank you. What did I do? <laughs> you teach us the Word of God. <laughs> well, so people come and they need to hear the gospel and they hear the story about a dead guy talking through the radio. Psalm 19, <laughs> 7 and 8. Do you want me to sing it? No. <laughs> no, just kidding. Sorry, no. Go ahead and read it. <laughs> Try to sneak that one in here. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right in rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Amen. And we did used to sing that. <laughs> There's a song for that. <laughs> okay, and you have... John 5.39. Yes, John 5.39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is these that bear witness of me. Right. Now that passage is a favorite of all the allegorists and the people that don't believe the authority of Scripture, but if you read on, he says, Moses spoke about me or wrote about me. So what, what Jesus is doing is rebuking them for not listening to Moses, not for actually reading the Scripture. Okay, Jesus is the lawgiver, the greater Moses. Okay, and then you had uh, which one? No, you didn't do one. You had Zeke here. Okay, Luke 9, 29 to 31. Is that what I gave you? 29 to 31. 29 to 31? Okay. Okay. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking to him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Amen. And that's the one that Keith was talking about earlier. So, Jesus, did you have one? No. no. Well, then you can't read it. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus' faith was shining greater than Moses, so Jesus is the one who supersedes Moses and speaks for God. And uh, Moses, Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. And so, Messianic prophecy is found in Torah that was written by Moses. And it points to the greater one who would come, and when he does, we're supposed to listen to him. Uh, probably the best reference to that is the one in Deuteronomy 18, right? Where, where it says, um, I will raise up a prophet like unto you, like Moses, and when, he, when I do, listen to him. And when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice from heaven came and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Moses was there. So what we got was the idea that, okay, here he is. Now we've identified who this prophet is who's going to supersede Moses and speak the words of God, and that's Jesus himself. So that's the greater glory of the new covenant. Now verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 3, How shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even with more glory. So now we learn something more about the New Covenant. The New Covenant is called the Ministry of the Spirit. The Ministry of the Spirit. And the idea is probably, as we've already referenced several times, so I won't go back there, but in Jeremiah 31, it talks about God writing His laws on hearts. And there are other Old Testament prophecies about God doing this, and one of which, let, here, now you can have one, Gail. There's Isaiah 44.3, and then uh, go over here to Lincoln, Joel 2.28-29, and Dan, John 1.17, Michelle, Acts 2.17 and 18, Dale, Romans 8.9-16, and Chitrani. Galatians 3, 2 through 5. I like that you have it spelled out. That definitely helps. <laughs> okay, um, Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Okay, so there's a promise that God is going to pour out his spirit on their seed, literally seed. So uh, that would be a promise of the giving of the Spirit 
under the new covenant. And then we have Joel 2, 28 to 29. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit on those days. Okay, now that's the prophecy that's cited later in Acts 2. And um, the, the, the interesting thing about Joel that's quoted by um, Peter is that there it's expanded. Now, when you saw the, the promise in Isaiah 44, I will pour out my spirit on your seed, it would be interpreted being, in other words, the descendants of Israel, okay, the Jewish people. Now, Joel expands that to say that not only is God going to pour out his spirit on the offspring of Israel, but he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. So now, uh, this is a prophecy about the new covenant that God is going to bring people from the north, south, east, and west, and they are going to receive the Holy Spirit and be the people. Not only that, it's going to be even a greater. They're going to prophesy. In other words, what was normally restricted to only a few special people who the Spirit came upon, usually priests or prophets, every once in a while a king, and they would speak for God. They're going to be all people under this covenant receiving the Spirit. God writes their laws in their hearts, and they shall be able to prophesy. Now, that doesn't mean that all people are authoritative or lawgivers. I hope you read these articles. We've discussed them here. But it means that the whole law is given to the whole church. In other words, the words of Jesus and the teachings of the New Covenant. And they're ours. And that everyone who's received the Spirit has the uh, right and authority to speak authoritatively for God, binding and loosing from those words. In other words, applying the true words of God to whatever situation. And every single New Covenant believer can preach the gospel. Amen. Every every single New Covenant believer who has the Holy Spirit, which is every if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're none of His, says in Romans 8, you can declare to people binding and loosing. And, let, and, and you can declare the authority to forgive sins in this regard. Amen. You can say to anyone that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And that the the wrath of God abides upon us because of our sin and rebellion and having broken the law of God. And the truth is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He shed his blood to avert God's wrath. And we can say to anyone, any one of us who is under the new covenant and has partaken in the sense of Joel's prophecy, can say, therefore, if you repent and believe the gospel, your sins will be forgiven. Amen. That's the terms. Therefore, if you reject Christ in the gospel, you shall retain your sins. Amen. And that's what binding and loosing. So uh, you're bound to the terms of the gospel. And if you believe it, you'll be loosed from your sins. <laughs> Does that make sense? And, and, and so that's what it means that we can all prophesy. Amen. All right? So, okay, what's John 1.17? For the... For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Amen. The law was given by Moses. Now, this is a reference again to Sinai. Because when God revealed himself on Sinai to Moses, and he was hid in the cliff of the rock, he couldn't see, Mo- he couldn't see the face of God. It was too glorious even for Moses. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock. And when God passed by, he said, The Lord uh, God, full of 
uh, of uh, loving kindness and truth. Has said NMF, loving kindness and truth. And when John announced Jesus as the one full of grace and truth, it's an illusion of Sinai. That Jesus is the greater Moses. And he, see, Moses, it was revealed to Moses that God was full of grace and truth. But Jesus himself is full of grace and truth, which equates him with God. Is that great? Also, Moses spoke or hit the rock and out come water. But that water, they thirst again. We got the greater covenant. Out of us comes living water. And the next time one of them preachers preach like that, I go back there and talk to them about it. In Jesus' name. I, I do that all the time. What right have they got to get up there and lie like that? Get them on the side. I'm going out the door and ask them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to be the preacher to preach on the Cubs when Dan was there. <laughs> you wait and talk about the Cubs after church, right? When you're in the pulpit, give us the word. All right, Acts 2, 17 and 18. <laughs> and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth on my, of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Okay, again, the, the point there is that this is universal. Not universal as far as all humans, but there's no class of persons Excluded. In other words, you can be young or old, female or male, Jew or Gentile. And if indeed the Holy Spirit is poured upon you according to the terms of the new covenant, then that applies to you. That prophecy applies to you. And that you have God's truth. Amen. And you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter who you are. That's right. There's no, it's not restricted to a class of persons. Uh, Romans 8 and 9, well, this is a long one. Romans 8, 9 through 16. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But... If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the, to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay. Amen. Amen. Now, the reason I wanted that one cited is I wanted us to understand that this is universal for all Christians. The the damage done in in the name of elitists and... and, and, uh, Whatever these movements are out there, is to claim well even these manifested sons. They they claim that there's some elite class of Christians that only that, that applies to. Okay, I've heard people say, well, the ones led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And what they mean by that is the ones that know how to get their own personal revelations beyond Scripture, and those ones are the sons, and the rest of us are just sort of like the little stepchildren or the lesser Christians. But it says here that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. 
right? Amen. And if the Spirit of Christ is in you, which is then you're part of the new covenant family, then all of those things are true. All true Christians are led by the Holy Spirit. Amen. All true Christians are adopted sons of God. Amen. All true Christians are... Um, all of these promises apply in Romans 8 to every single Christian, not an elite class. Sorry, had a little delay. We'll do that to you. Well, I was just saying, this really applies to the sermon that you're going to give on the text in Luke because you have the spirit of adoption and you have the spirit of slavery and you can't mix the two. You're either one or the other. And if you try to mix the two, it's a damnable thing. Yeah, absolutely. The sermon's going to be on the wineskins in the patch of cloth. Um, and I'll, I'll be applying that to it. Again, often misapplied. The reason we teach hermeneutics to the whole church is that, so that people are capable of, and have the tools to know when somebody's misleading them. So, and, it's, and it's really what you're learning is how to read. You're learning how to read the Bible so you know what it means. And once you do, somebody can't come along and say, well, the manifested sons are some guys down in Kansas City or somewhere that are walking five feet above the ground because they had a Epiphany of some sort. Okay. Well, we don't mean anybody in particular, huh? <laughs> okay. Um, go ahead uh, and do... Which one was it? Galatians 3? Yeah, I wasn't sure. Okay, Galatians 3. The whole of 3? No, 2 through 5. This only I desire to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, do you now perfect yourself in the flesh? Did, you want me to go? Verse 5. Did you suffer much vainly, if indeed it also was vainly? Then he is supplying the Spirit to you and working works of power in you. Is it by works of law or by hearing of faith? Yes. And so Paul was contending that they had received the Holy Spirit by faith through the gospel and that somebody tried to confound the law and the gospel by demanding that they follow the law of Moses and circumcision and other things and that therefore they were trying to begin in the spirit and get perfected by the flesh. And Paul denies that that's possible. And I'll talk about this in my sermon this morning. I was going to quote a, a scholar by the name of Garland whose commentary in 2 Corinthians has been very profound. And he, he's going to lay out uh, four implications of what Paul's teaching here about the ministry of death and the ministry of life through the Spirit. And it's a little bit long, but I think that it'll help us understand. Paul can say that the ministry of Moses, this is Garland, meets out death for those whose hearts have not been changed for four reasons. First, the law prescribes death as the penalty for sin, Romans 5, 12 to 21. It places the disobedient under a curse. Quote, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Deuteronomy 27, uh, 26. Which, by the way, that argument Paul brings up in Galatians. He'll bring it up. So that's the first point. Second, the law specifies transgressions. One can sin in ignorance. Quote, For the law brings about wrath. But where there's no law, there's no transgression, Romans 4.15. Transgression requires a recognized standard of what is right and wrong. The law makes sin to be known as sin, Romans 3.20 and 7.7. And then he says, see the JB translation of Galatians 3.18, quote, the law has added, was added to specify sins. All right? 
Transgression, says Garland, is a willful violation of that standard and is consequently more serious. The law, more serious sin. The, the, the law clarified the moral and religious situation of the world by revealing that sin is a conscious and deliberate transgression. Sinners not only violate God's will, but they now know that what they do is a violation of God's will and they defiantly continue in their sin. The law exposes the sinful character of wrongdoing by revealing it to be conscious, active rebellion against God. Its effect is to increase transgression, which leads to death, Romans 5.20. Third, the law provides an opportunity for sinful people to garble God's commands with legal, legalistic casuistry. Casuistry is what the Pharisees were doing. Okay, is it a sin to work if you carry stones so far? Is it a sin if you, well, we're going to talk about this in my sermon. They were shelling out the grain with their hands. And they were accounted guilty of five, five sins. And I'll tell you about that in my sermon, for shelling out grain in their hand and eating it on Sabbath. Okay, that's what causality looks like. Um, where was I? Uh, sinful legalistic causality to delude themselves into thinking they have done what God requires. That's what Paul was said in Philippians, what he did, delude themselves in thinking that they've done what God requires. Then they rely on their own inadequate achievements and racial and religious heritage rather than placing trust in God, Romans 3, 19-31. Their legalism may even foster an inner rebellion so that they are ruled by uh, the rule book rather than by God. Fourth, the law cannot give life because it has no power to do so, Romans 7, 10, 8, 1-11. The law does not offer assistance to obey it and does not grade on a curve. It only announces the penalty of death for those who fail. Even a 99.99% obedience rate earns a failing grade. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. I, I had to share that with you. It was just too well written. Yes, Dan. Well, if you go back to Galatians 3, that simple idea that uh, you received salvation by faith and now you want to perfect it by works. Yes. Is that pretty much the underlying principle of virtually everything that isn't Christian? Well, yeah, every religion that's not Christian is based on works righteousness. I mean, even a, even a heresy. Well, heresies always bring us back to works in some regard. Absolutely. Because take elitism, for example. These people who claim that they've had a second blessing that makes them better Christians than ordinary Christians. Well, how did they gain this status? Well, either some secret knowledge or some practice or something that they did. Yes. I was just talking to some people about there's a supposed revival going on in the north of the cities by a guy named Doug Stanton. And Doug Stanton has a means of grace, or you can be saved, and he might even preach the gospel in his meetings, but how you really get pure and how you really become sanctified is to go to his meetings. So it's a good example of that because... If you attend his meetings every night for 20 weeks, your flesh then kind of can't do what it wants to do, and then your spirit comes alive. It's a really, it's, it's the same exact concept. Uh, yes, and oh man, when I was duped by that sort of thing, boy, that brings back memories. Um, let, let me just warn, warn everyone, because I fell into it. The people that fall into these traps sometimes are the most motivated and pious people. That I mean, they really do want to be good Christians. Uh, when I was like that... Um, as a, as a new Christian, and I didn't really get out of it for, for many years, but the idea was I had to be doing something to prove that I was more pious than everybody around me. So if I met somebody at Bible college that claimed that he prayed 12 hours a week, then I had to pray 15. 
Okay? Literally. That's literally how I felt. Oh, 12. Okay, I watched this. I'm going to pray 15. Why witness to to five people? Okay, I'm going to witness to 10. Um, I went to so many revival meetings. Well, I went to more than you did. Uh, And then I went and joined the Christian commune where we sold everything we had and gave it to the kingdom of God. And we were living in the pure kingdom of God on earth. It was the kingdom. and We call it that. And um, I thought the kingdom actually owned property. Because I didn't understand the, doc, the, the biblical concept of the kingdom of God. But I wasn't doing that because I was trying to re, be rebellious. I was doing that because I wanted to be a better Christian. I thought the churches were full of just ordinary Christians that were kind of humdrum and weren't doing anything for God. So I was going to do more for God than anybody else around. And this is a trap. It's a satanic trap to make, it's, whether it seems like all kind of good spiritual activities, it was still works righteousness. And and I wasn't just thinking all the time, thank God that the gospel was given to me, a sinner, and thank God that God can use anybody, and that this is, that that the truth of the giving of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant is for every Christian, even if in our eyes they might seem ordinary. We don't know these things, and I think on the day of judgment, when at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be surprised at the great rewards distributed to, to the unknown and to the people who made no great claims. Yes. yes it's the whole concept of that, of being purified, that I can do something to purify myself that way, preys on the gullible people that are most trying to believe. The, the people that are damaged most by that kind of teaching are the people that want to get closest to God and think that they can do something about it. That's a very, very good and important concept, the idea of drawing near to God. And we've, I've been getting emails from people... Oh, I had one. Uh, maybe if I have time, I'll share it with you. We had an interesting... Remember that one that we went... It was that personal words from God thing. Um, the, here's the thing. That's why I teach means of grace. Means of grace protect the church from pietism and elitism. Amen. Because the means of grace are what God's given to every Christian, and He's given to every Christian for the whole since the day of Pentecost. Amen. And the means of grace... Uh, the Word of God, prayer, communion, baptism, and, and then fellowship around those means are the way that God takes ordinary people who've been saved by grace and He changes them. Amen. And, and, and what we're doing, when you teach means of grace, then you're con- you begin in the Spirit and you continue in the Spirit. You begin in the Spirit by grace through faith and you continue by faith, not by works. Amen. And so means of grace means this. I don't think I would ever be sanctified if I just went around and tried to be a better Christian. But if I come and sit myself in faith under the means of grace and hear the Word of God and have Christians around me praying for me and I participate in prayer and the things that God's given us, God will even change me and you. And you have no hint of elitism. It's just humble sinners Saved by grace, coming and submitting to what God told them to do because He said, if you do these things by faith, that's how I'm going to change you. And it rules out spiritual elitism and mysticism and all of this stuff. And what, what it's saying is that it may seem simple, sort of like name and going and washing in the Jordan, right? Remember that story? The, the, the leper? It was a means of grace for him because the prophet of God told him it was. 
It's not a general one, but it was for him. And so, remember, his servant said, well, I'm not going to do that. What kind of, I came here to hear a prophet who's going to do some grand thing, you know, go wash in the Jordan. What a stupid thing that is. And he was going to leave. And his servant said, well, if he asked you to do some simple thing, would you have done that? Or some great thing? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I sure would. Well, why don't you just do what he says? Oh, okay. So he goes and he, and he comes out cleansed. Now, why did the Jordan cleanse him from his leprosy? Because God's authoritative prophet had made that the means of grace for him. Amen. All right. So in analogically, what I'm saying to you is that God's authoritative prophets, Christ and his apostles, have said to you, go and wash yourself in the word of God. Amen. And you shall be clean. Amen. Do you get that? Go and wash yourself in the word of God. Sit under clear, solid Bible teaching and believe the scripture. Study it for yourself. Preach it to one another. Talk about it when you're coming in and going out. And these words from God, because you've been born of the Spirit of God, the Word of God was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it will resonate in your heart, and it will cause you hope and joy, and, and, and it will convict when we need to be convicted, it will encourage when we need to be encouraged, and it will set us on the straight path. And you won't even perceptively see other than it's because it's a growth. It isn't like you went and got slain under the power at the Benny Hinn meeting. Okay? Well, before you were standing, now you're sitting under the power. Now we know something happened. Well, uh, I don't know about that, but I don't think so. But what happens is you come in, you come as a, maybe an angry, bitter person, and you receive the gospel, and you still tend to be the way you are, but you start sitting under the Word of God, and three months later, six months later, a year later, you're not an angry, bitter person. Nobody cast a spirit of bitterness out of you. Nobody did anything other than you got fed the Word, and the Word of God does what it does. And I've seen this for years and years and years and years, and I'm seeing it now, and I'm seeing it in you. I'm seeing people here watching God change them because it's the Word of God that does it. So that is uh, absolutely essential, and that's our new covenant. Um, and that's what Paul's talking about. That's, what the, that's the ministry of the Spirit. He says, it says in back to our verse, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? The only way it could is if you didn't actually do the ministry of the Spirit. In other words, if you taught legalism, you don't have any more glory, you have the same problem. You're going back under a curse. So Paul says in Galatians 3. But if it really is the ministry of the Spirit, if you read what he means by the ministry of the Spirit, he talks about we have not adulterated the Word of God. Whatever our gospel is hidden, is hidden of those lost. In other words, he forthrightly, purely, without malice or deceit or corruption, taught the people the Word of God. That's the ministry of the Spirit. So people talk about, well, we need the Holy Spirit to do a great revival. Well, then preach the Gospel. Amen. Preach the Gospel. How are you going to have a revival by just having a contest to see who, how many nights somebody went to church? How's that anything but works righteousness? I went to church 30 nights in 30 days. Wow. Poor me, I only went on Sunday. But I'll tell you one thing, the Sunday I went, I heard the pure Word of God. And it had a greater effect than going seven days a week hearing lies and falsehood. All right. I got three minutes. Let's see if I can read, read this email. I had the most interesting email exchange. And, and we came, it was based on, oh, no, no, this, this is a different one. Here, this is about the seeker movement. It's still a good one, though. Okay, this one's funny. This guy, 
This guy, I told you about this before. Remember the pastor was going to have rodeo Sunday and he forbid any gospel to be taught because he didn't want to do bait and switch? Okay, so the, this friend, this friend of mine, email friend of mine who goes to that church said, no, that's, well, can we, he says, can we just have a table with tracks on it if anybody wants them? Well, here's the answer. The pastor writes this, quote, let me review the philosophy again behind the rodeo. This is a level one event, meaning the target attendees are those who live within driving distance of the church and have no connection to Grace Church or Christ. The goal is simply to build a bridge to them. I believe that Jesus used this philosophy as he would eat and build bridges with sinners and tax gatherers. Uh, there are sinners, tax gatherers, but no evidence at all any preaching was done by him. Well, that's not true. He just uh, built bridges. So this is what the rodeo is for. We want to build bridges and touch people as possible with the goal that God would use these contacts for those who he is working within to make the steps towards relation with Christ. As a result, we do not want the event to have any flavor of bait and switch to it. We simply want it to be a fun community event. Hundreds of people can have bridges. So I prefer that we do not have a literature table set up. In other words, you can't even be there with a trap. Right. So my buddy says, well, what do you say to that? He asked me about this. Um, and I responded and I said, well, but when Jesus ate with, I just preached on this, remember? He ate with Levi. First of all, he told Levi, follow me. So Levi repented. And then he brought in his sinner friends. And then the point was, Jesus said, I came to bring sinners to repentance. Okay, so that's, he wasn't just building bridges. He's bringing sinners to repentance. And then I said, here's what Jesus told us to do. Repentance or forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed his name to the nations. Uh, and so then I kind of gave that back to him. And he says this. So Josh was thinking about this, my friend. He says, I don't know what took me so long, but it's just hit me now. If Jesus were here right now in the flesh, he would not be allowed to attend our church events. <laughs> um, I'm not the best writer, but I'm going to try to write a prayer, prayer letter to Jesus making the point. I'm going to try to creatively come up to uninvite Jesus. Sorry, you're not invited. And then I, uh, I think I gave... Here, then I said, well, I, I wrote him back. I gave him another suggestion. I said, here's the analogy. I said, Josh, I think the analogy is more like this. Jesus, if you come, you're not allowed to teach. Please bend, blend in with the crowd and do not let anybody know who you are. <laughs> because this is a level one event. Uh, anyhow, is, there it is. This, this is real life. This is, this is what's going on. Now, what are we saying here? We're, we're just denying the means of grace, aren't we? Yes. The rodeo isn't going to convert anybody. And if church is putting it on, these people aren't that dumb. They assume the church believes something. They have some reason they have an event. So why, why would it be wrong to even have a table out with Christian literature on it? So the question by the new attendees would be, when's the next rodeo? Instead of, are we going to have church here someday? <laughs> okay. Well, so there you go. That's I thought I I thought you'd be interested because I mentioned that one before. Pray for people. This Josh, by the way, I cite him in my book. He's been contacting me for probably four or five years, and he's gone from one church to another to another. And he, when every time he's gone to one that was preaching the gospel, by after a while they go away from it. 
And he, he keeps ending up in the same situation. He was the guy, the, the, the church he used to go to bought 10,000 purpose-driven life books for the members when it came out. And, and he was, he's the one whose story was that he went to church and the pastor was jumping up and kicking a soccer ball over his head during a sermon. You know, boom, you know. Well, that's what I said. I said, uh, I said, I bet you anything that pastor's not 56 years old. <laughs> so much for that idea. <laughs> I, I tried to jump up and kick a ball over my head. I think that they better call a paramedics before I do the jump. Okay, anyhow, we had the privilege of having the Word of God. Today we're going to study again in Luke chapter 5, so help us with the chairs. We'll see you upstairs in a half hour.